That plus or minus 2% you get with quantitative work is only if it's a valid research. Otherwise, it's plus or minus 100%. I think the big thing about strategy is change management, change acceleration. What I found was interesting in what we did in our third way was we brought product into it in a big way. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. This is Marketing Podcast once more. I'm Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. Ready for episode 39? I am. Have you guys dried out down there? Didn't you get some rain or something? It's it's still pouring. Is it's it? pretty wet and it has caused floods and that's too bad. But that seems to be the theme of our cartoon today. The idea of <laughs> you can't have it always, right? You can't have it always. It's true. So today's cartoon comes from the marketoonist. And uh, Tom Fishburne offers us this one with a guy standing and he's looking at two doors. And in his mind, he's saying decisions, decisions. And the first door is marked long-term brand building with no clear impact on sales. And the other door is marked short-term performance marketing that devalues the brand. Decisions, decisions. (laughs) Right. So you see this, what comes to your mind? Well, a lot of things come to mind, which is one is, yeah, I think a lot of marketers feel like that's what they're confronted by. I think a lot of the vendors that come in their door offer only these two options and so forth and so on. I think the reality is that uh, Harry Potter-like, there's many other doors in between them. And you can't see them, but if you want to get it to whatever platform six and a half or whatever it was, um, you know, there's a place to go that is better or, you know, can be be a different direction than these two. On the other hand, I do understand why the marketers feel that way. Um, For a start, that's my thought. Yeah, I had a problem with the formulation for that reason, because those like, why are those two the only choices Mm -hmm. and long term, but useless and then short term, effective, but damaging. I also liked how he put performance marketing in quotes Mm -hmm. because I've also had a similar reaction to it is like, as opposed to what, you know, like low performance marketing. Supposedly we don't want our marketing to perform really. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But, but really the question was why. And as we were talking about in our pre-show, when you were suggesting that there's a third way and you kind of positioned your agency as a third way and platform nine and a half doesn't exist, but, for the right wizardry, it does exist and you can Mm -hmm. go right through it. Yeah. I think what's tricky with this is you can do a lot of short-term things that are really excellent for building brands. And you can do a lot of long-term things, which actually will have impact on sales. And you don't have to be stuck with this either or. The world of what you can really do in marketing is far wider and far more interesting than this. I have worked with a lot of brand agencies or general agencies, which means they specialize in brand advertising, who don't want to be measured on anything short-term. 
And I've even found a kind of this funky sense, not that anybody would quite say it this way, but if an ad drove sales, it must not be a good ad. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, you know, nobody would ever say that, but you got that sense of, well, if it drives an immediate reaction, it can't be good advertising. Well, that's not true. Advertising is just what appears on the screen and people respond to it and make choices based on that. Where I see it being most difficult is that a lot of brand agencies will come into companies of any type, any age, any situation in the market and say, well, you need to do a brand campaign. And that's not true. There are a lot of things that people might need to do that are different than that, but they're kind of bringing their one hammer. You know, they have a hammer and they bring that hammer to everybody. And yeah. One of my big bugaboos, as you know, is marketing is a very wide mix of activities mm -hmm. and advertising, PR, outbound email, all of mm -hmm. those are subordinate to the marketing umbrella. They're not separate from it. No. Mm -hmm. And when the advertising department says, marketing told me this, I say, mm -hmm. well, you are marketing. Yeah. <laughs> or like the PR firm says, marketing thinks this. No, you are marketing. Yeah. So that is definitely a challenge, in my opinion. You know, I, I had a friend once tell me that he thought some of the challenge I had getting uh, a lot of brand agencies to pay much attention to our work is that I was a real businessman. Right. And they just didn't know how to interact with that because I really care about how does business happen? How do we make things better? How do we achieve something? What's your challenge? You're trying business challenge the client was trying to solve. And so I would approach it from a full business point of view. Right. On. Um, where, and, I, and I think it was fair that some of these agencies were like, oh, no, it's just about brand. You know, we just go throw down on brand. Yeah. We also have talked about proxies. Yeah. Like at the end, what you want is revenue and margin mm -hmm. valuation. You want multiple mm -hmm. and they're all kind of interrelated. But if you have too much activation, that's not bad for nurturing. <laughs> you have too much nurturing, that's not bad for branding. Yeah. Well, they're the, all the objective, you know, you can't be yeah. focused on the proxy to the real thing and consider the real thing undesirable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all advertising is about sales, whether those are today or 10 years from now. Right. It's all about sales. Brand, brand is entirely about sales. Yeah. There is no other reason to build a brand. But now, does that mean all the sales from a brand activity have to happen now? No, not necessarily. But the whole point is that you're going to be making the money back from the money you're spending. That's I right. That's what right. I found was interesting in what we did in our third way was we brought product into it in a big way. And through the product, we would see the brand. And so we were very careful to always make sure the product thrived within the brand, illustrated the brand, showed the features of the brand, you know, basically all brand building activities. But by focusing on the product, we could lead people to choose action right away instead yeah. of deferring that action to later. Nothing right, wrong, indifferent. Although what it did is for companies that needed things to happen fast, they tended to happen fast. And I also have a belief that for all all the beauty of an advertisement about brand, nothing builds mental associations around a brand as fast as holding the product in your hand and using it. You know, right. the engagement with the product is the biggest way to build brand. So there is some value that comes for branding from short-term getting people involved. And so for, for new companies, I always believe you got to go out and start selling right away. You know, and you need to figure out what people think. You got to start building those associations. And at a later point, you can afford to say, all right, now we're going to cut out some of that money. Let's go do some stuff that's purely yeah. about setting up the long term. That's really an excellent insight. And 
And of course, with my big iron, so to say, B2B background, big iron, for those of you who may not be familiar, refers to the big computer systems that are the size of a room, let's say. So that's not always possible to do in the, in, you know, in my world, but you're absolutely right. When it is possible, when somebody has used a big supercomputer somewhere, yeah. they do get attached to it. But, mm-hmm. but you just, I mean, our conversation gave me three or four concepts that are pretty consistent with our pre-show talk. Uh-huh. And one of them is just holding a product in your hand and focus on sales. Let's talk about the big product that was announced this week, and that's Apple Vision Pro. Well, there's nothing like holding a product on your face to, uh, to uh, build, uh, build uh, connection with it. It's supposed to be not so heavy, though. I have not, I've not tried it. But. That's what I've heard. I've heard that the form factor and everything is better than a lot of the previous virtual reality things. So, yeah, so Apple um, released, they announced quite a while back, but they, they released the Vision, uh, Apple Vision Pro. I'll get the name right once. And it started appearing a lot of places. People are already posting all sorts of crazy videos about it, which are primarily, I think, setup videos. They're not real, but they might be real. I don't know. I don't know. Some, how well some of them are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and a lot of them are about the idea that you're wearing it walking around the city, making hand motions in the air because you're apparently working on the uh, Apple Vision Pro and you look silly. But uh, apart from that, I guess the thing I was thinking about this week with it is I track, you know, as a guy around new products, I track a lot of these kinds of things. And I always have pondered a lot of the tech releases over promise dramatically, partly by making things seem like they're going to be for everybody Hmm. when they aren't. And I think we were talking earlier in the pre-show, our poster child for that is Google Glass. And the story I've heard that is really interesting about Google Glass is that one of the people who invented it wrote an article later with his frustrations when Larry and Sergey, I guess it was, one of them came in and took over the effort and kind of took it away from the guys that had invented the product, that the guys who invented the product saw very excellent specialized uses, like for a doctor or you know what that might be. And what Google did when they announced it is they announced it like it was going to be everybody wearing one as we walked down the street. And in fact, that announcement was the death of Google Glass because mm-hmm. we all went, no, we're not going to do that. And it was a failure. Once they put it out there to try to get everybody to wear it down the street, it failed. Where had they focused on the specialized use cases, they might have done very well. I can't tell with Apple a few things, but let's start with you and I were talking, you have a sense of where the specialized use cases are that work for it right now. Yeah, I do. I think it is good for physical fitness. Mm-hmm. It is good for mental fitness, meditation, and mm-hmm. that sort of a thing, or audio therapy and such. Mm-hmm. I think it is good for immersive gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do have like a 3D or immersive movie that's been specially cut for it, I think Mm -hmm. the experience would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that because when you wear it, you can hold your head upright, Mm -hmm. you could in practice do a lot of work without bending your head Mm -hmm. down or worry about ergonomic Mm -hmm. uh, seating, and that could work too. But you add all that up, that's not everybody. I think that's a big enough market to get it going, especially Mm -hmm. at the price that it is, which is pretty out of reach for most people. Well, what are you saying? It's about 4500 to be practically in your hands, right? Yeah, I think if you just want the thing, if I'm not mistaken, the price tag is pretty close to 3500 But if you mm-hmm. need the extra battery pack and the carrying case and mm-hmm. 
and and you know some of the cables and you know the audio etc it, it could easily add up to 4500 mm-hmm. so now you have to say okay who's going to be paying for this so it's either rich people who do it either for stature or because of the you know street cred mm-hmm. hey i have one of these and i know mm-hmm. what i'm talking about it could be developers mm-hmm. who are writing applications for it so essentially vcs Mm-hmm. Or who are paying for it to write apps and create the ecosystem. They announced with a lot of applications, like an iPhone mm-hmm. was announced with very few embedded mm-hmm. and no really extra app stores like, and this guy's already way ahead. And then you have corporations that are either mm-hmm. seeing a particular ROI mm-hmm. or they think it's part of their branding. I could see airlines provide this in their first class cabin or maybe mm-hmm. even business class cabin as a way of enticing users. Mm -hmm. So I think those are real, but it's also the beginning. I think it's probably going to be 10 years before it becomes something that can be more widely used. Yeah. And I think that was where I had my question is certainly from a distance. I was not intimately involved with this, but it's sometimes interesting to stand back. It's a little like squinting when you look at a page of text to see whether it's typeset well. And, uh, you know, sometimes squints tell us a lot because they get rid of details. So by standing back, it was interesting. It felt to me like people were interpreting as as a, this is useful for everyone announcement. Now, I'm not sure that's really what Apple did, but on the other hand, that's the danger for Apple. Hmm. Because when you make a, this is for everyone announcement, and it turns out not to be, then you have a real disconnect for people. And I think the three I think of are Segway, Google Glass, of course, right. but also Meta in the metaverse. You know, the metaverse ended up being underwhelming. I think Metaverse had really clear specialized uses and had Facebook focused on those, they might have built to a far better place. But I don't know. I sometimes think, I don't know what's driving it, but a lot of the tech companies in this world seem to try to grab for it all initially. And I don't know if that's competitive or that's just habit or what. Well, this Apple Vision Pro is a Metaverse reaffirming product Mm -hmm. and it is one-upping meta with their goggles and the work that they're doing with Ray-Ban. Mm -hmm. And there are people who have that way lower price, so a lot more accessible. And people like certain use cases of that, like the ability to snap a photo in -hmm. the moment. And of course, for meta, it also changed the topic. It changed the name of the company. Mm -hmm. It changed the conversation. It was totally like the scene from Mad Men, Mm -hmm. when the rule is, if you don't like the conversation, change it. You know, the other thing with Apple we talked about is because they have such a reputation for brilliant consumer marketing, mm-hmm. they make it very difficult for you to criticize them. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's what's harder to tell with them is whether they are still doing that well. Yeah, I was talking to my class today, we were talking about kind of you know the difference between those product releases that have magic to them and the products that are just strong. And right. I would say the Apple Watch is strong. The iPhone, the iPad, the iPod, oh, they were magic. You know, they took off in that way. That's just a magic level. This does seems to be, if anything, it'll be strong or a little mm-hmm. bit less. But I don't know what their process is leading up to it. I think, you know, you made the observation that they probably have used a lot of research in getting to this point. And me being a guy who's done a lot of research, I have... Uh, questions about it. You know, what kind of research are they doing at at this point? Um, Because there's research and there's research. I've worked with a lot of corporate research that came in the doors of my agency where they'd say, oh, this will tell you everything you know. And I'd put the research tape in the, yes, VHS, uh, VCR, and play it back (laughs) and go, this is 
horrible research and it's not trustworthy. You're not discovering anything for what you need and therefore it tells us nothing. And there's a real, you know, I mean, one of the comments I'll make about research very often is that people choose absolutely reliable research companies and then they get absolute mediocrity in the research and mediocre research is worse than bad research mm. because bad research you can detect. You can look at it and go, oh, God, this is completely horrible. What were they thinking? Whereas mediocre research is dressed with all the trappings of statistics and validity and people involved that are big and all these things. But it doesn't give us insight. And if we aren't really digging, I used to tell people that if we didn't do our focus group work, if that's what we were doing, and come out surprised by something important, we hadn't done our job, that it should surprise us. We should be allowing it to surprise us. We should be looking for surprises. But a lot of corporate research is designed to cover your ass. To validate you. (laughs) Yeah, to validate you. You know, well, I made this choice and look, the research backs it up. Did you do the research before the choice? Oh, no, but it backs us up, you know. Yeah. And what I think that's led to, here's, here's my big conclusion on this. I think companies don't know how to know the difference between picking the vendors that will give you the good back up your decision research and the vendors who will give you the challenging new product, discover something, innovation research, and they're different vendors, in my opinion. They just well, don't. let's talk about research. And I've been really looking forward to this to get your perspective on it. Yeah. Because I agree it's hard. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done it as frequently and consistently as you have. Mm-hmm. But as a consumer of research and with my CMO hat on, mm-hmm. we have pursued it several times. The typical process where I come from is going and signing up to an industry analyst firm or two mm-hmm. and actually hopefully consume the research because mm-hmm. you know you have access to it. Mm-hmm. But how many of your team are actually looking at it? How many of your team are actually like consulting with them? Right. Etc. And then it is used, like you said, sometimes it's used to validate, sometimes it's used to really learn and find mm-hmm. out where things are going. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's used to influence the analyst yeah. about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's more like an outbound thing that is mm-hmm. disguising itself as an inbound thing. Mm-hmm. But, but when you look at different methodologies for, for research, besides kind of Googling your way and then signing up to an analyst firm. So now you have mm-hmm. purchased data in addition to public data or looking at your internal data. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also focus groups like we talked about that Apple mm-hmm. obviously has done or surveys, mm-hmm. which I'm sure they have done too, mm-hmm. and on and on. So would you take us through that spectrum? Yeah, actually, I've just been teaching this in my class. I mean, Yay. <laughs> you know, we have qualitative and quantitative research. And one of the dangers we have in business is that a lot of CEOs and executives figure that if it's qualitative, it's, it's to be ignored and only quantitative can be trusted. That completely misunderstands the two of them. And that is not, I mean, I, I have read so many quantitative research surveys that the survey was so flawed that nobody should rely on it because it asks questions that the consumer doesn't understand or the person right. on the other end doesn't right. understand. So whatever their answer is, it's not a knowledge answer. It's a random thing they pulled out of the air because like students in school, when we're being asked research survey questions, we have to answer. We're usually not even given the option of saying, I don't know. You know please don't <laughs> ask that. Well, we aren't given that option, right? We have to answer it. So it's not so clear. And in fact, the difference really is that quantitative is superficial 
but can be projected reliably to a total market. In other words, you've done the numbers and the quantities well enough that you can say, out of our market of people who might buy this thing, it looks like 60% would use it for this. Okay, And so quantitative is about getting that kind of reliable projectability to project (laughs) from what we learned here to the total market. Quantitative is about depth. And so you've got qualitative depth versus quantitative superficiality, but projectable. And you really can't bridge those two. You can't do depth, but also make it projectable. It just doesn't work that way. So one of the processes a lot of us use is you do qualitative research to understand an area. And sometimes out of that, what you do then is that is what informs how do I write my survey. So by having done qualitative work, we understand the language of the customer. We understand how they're thinking. We know how to ask a question that they'll understand and respond to accurately. It's really useful. I've also heard the analogy of a telescope and a microscope. Uh huh. Does that work for you? Is that a fair way of saying the difference between these two? Which is which? <laughs> uh, well, a focus group would be the microscope because uh-huh. you have the opportunity to drill down. Right. I can't disagree with that. It's not one that resonates with me. Yeah. Let me give you a different way to think about it, which is, and I've been writing this in my book about how, you know, complexity is about things that emerge. Things interact, people interact, all these parts interact. And out of the chaos of all that stuff, trends and patterns emerge. And we come to understand those things. What I like about focus groups is I get to watch the emergence and the interactions and make see it all happen in front of me. And so the depth comes not only from seeing depth, but seeing interactions, relations Mm -hmm. between concepts, between ideas, between people, so that when we would do focus group work, we would often change the order in which we would present ideas because what people heard would be dependent on what order we put those in. So do they need to know this before they're ready to hear that? That's a pretty critical thing for us to know. And so we would work with that. We eventually, over time, started doing a thing we called foundation work. Before we'd ever get to the product, we would just test ideas, you know, Hmm. like with Apple Pro, we'd say things like, well, there's virtual reality headsets. Did you know they do this or that? And test whether people knew that or not. But then we'd be able to learn if it was important to get people educated before we presented our product. A whole bunch of learning that was really key and critical to understanding that whole process. Yeah. Uh, You know, the other thing about focus groups and surveys Mm -hmm. is what topics do you bring up? How do you conduct the focus group? How do you moderate? Yeah. How do you allow or not allow someone to hijack the conversation? Mm-hmm. How do you actively listen so that you get the insights and the nuances? Yeah. And for a survey, it's more like how do you formulate the questionnaire? Mm-hmm. How do you not lead the witness? Mm-hmm. How do you not try to project your own biases? Those are all really hard, aren't they? Well, they are. It take, I mean, it's all about expertise and having the people who know how to do it. And I think it's one of these contradictory places, too, that if we need to do exploratory work, which is what Apple should have been doing with Apple Vision Pro, I don't know what they did, but that's what they would have needed. If you're doing exploratory work, it's different people than if you're doing other kinds of work, because what you need is somebody who, between two focus groups, when I go in and say, uh, a moderator, if I go in and say, hey, let's reorder this, they're like, okay, great, no problem. Whereas the purist researchers would say, oh, no, we need to have two identical groups so we can compare what happened. 
to which my answer is no, we're trying to learn. And mm-hmm. I'd rather learn than go for absolute repeatability kind of hopes, which aren't there with focus groups. Right. Yeah. And you think it, it's all those moderator is critical. Hmm. People sometimes complain that people in focus groups influence each other. And Carla Roberts, who I used for 30 years almost, and I would laugh about, <laughs> look, if we didn't want them influencing each other, we wouldn't bring them together in a group. Uh. Um, because the beauty of a group is that you uncover things through discussion. Just like when you and I do our pre-show and you say something and it brings up an idea for me and I'm thinking, oh God, that's a really, but then, you know, it, it helps me move my thinking along. That same thing is what we're after within focus groups. That's right. Because that's lets us see inside of people better. If you just interview people, you get a shallower right. sense of their understanding. Although and, that could be another path that you have a one-on-one interview and you can go into depth and you can see what they think, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and there's also ethnographic research, which is all the rage or has been the rage in some circles, which means go into the person's home. And the rage part of it is, you know, says, well, see, they're more comfortable. Therefore, you get more honest answers. That's not true. If you go into a woman's home to talk with her about kitchen, the night before she's going to clean the kitchen, buy Mm. flowers, you know, get up and dress differently, reorganize the kitchen a little bit, and then you show up. So you're not really... You know, mm. your mere presence changes things. It always Yeah, that's right. On the other hand, what you can do in a home is say, well, why are you storing the coffee maker there and mm. here? And that actually is really nice for some things. I and mean, we've done a lot with tools in shops, go into mm. people's shops and talk about why is the table saw over there or, you know, whatever that is. And you can learn a lot. So those are kind of the three types of qualitative. And then quantitative is in a little chaos these days because we used to be able to do everything by phone. And, uh, you know, it doesn't work as well. None of us would like to take unknown phone numbers on our cell phones. So then we try to do it online or through text and it just doesn't work that well. And we have real troubles in quantitative right now with response rates are miserable. If you send out an email uh, survey, you're lucky to get 1%. And then you have to filter out the people who submitted it, but aren't qualified to submit it Yep, because mm-hmm. they just wanted whatever... Reward you you're offering them. as an incentive. And so it's difficult. It's not impossible. It just is very, very, very hard work. Yeah. Here's the other thing I'll say, the hidden gotcha in quantitative research is a lot of quantitative research has some kind of an open-ended question where you might say, oh, so you've owned this product for 20 years. Tell me what you think about it or what do you like best about it? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of inaccuracy that comes in through open-ended questions. First, you're dependent on an operator to write it down. And I used to be able to go through research reports and identify where we changed operators because the quality of the open ends would change. And then some, then an open end has to be tabulated somehow. So somebody goes through and tabulates them into three or four categories or five uh-huh. categories. Well, you're really dependent on whoever does that tabulation. One time we did a survey and having done focus reports, when it came back, we're like, that seems wrong around the tabulations. And I had seen the, the literal answers and they felt wrong to me, but I didn't have a quantitative view of it. So one of the people on my team who had been in the focus groups did her own tabulation and found the exact opposite huh. of what the research facility had tabulated as. In a way, that's shocking and should give us all second thoughts about some of this. You know, we must not assume too much because it has a number of, you know, plus or minus 2%. That plus or minus 2% you get with quantitative work is only if it's a valid research, which means the customer understood the question, you tabulated it correctly, 
only then is it plus. Everything or minus. went right. Otherwise, <laughs> it's plus or minus one hundred percent. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew data was going to show up somewhere, and why it's so hard. There you go. Let's try to conclude with a quote from our dear friend JP Kesteling. Yeah, I was interested in this one because actually, it's some of my writing. I've been writing a little bit about theory and practice, and it's really useful for us to talk about this because I think we're in a phase as societies where there's a lot of people shouting what should be done in theory and the practical side of things, the pragmatic side of things is getting, is harder to see. But anyway, so here's what JP observed in his blog. From my experience, when strategies do fail, it's typically because they neglect to account for the messy reality in which they're intended to be executed. This is hardly surprising. Strategy is usually taught under the implicit assumption that there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, we know there is. Yeah, right. And then he continues, praxis, which is a a flavor of a word around practice, I think you're going to talk a little bit about. Praxis, which I consider so fundamental to strategy that I've devoted an entire newsletter to it, can be defined as thoughtful doing with the goal of action. It relies on theory. But if the said theory fails to match reality, praxis requires that you change the theory accordingly. It is context-specific. Indeed. And, and of course, also data-driven, mm-hmm. which puts us right back into the previous conversation because your data could be faulty. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what happens when, mm-hmm. when it doesn't work and you say, okay, then let's change the theory. People say, hang on a second. Yeah. Did it really not work? Or maybe, anyway... Mm-hmm. But one comment I should make, of course, is about the word praxis, because in many ways, that's a brand of JP, because he likes to use it. And like he said, he has a newsletter devoted to it, which you should all go subscribe to if you don't already. He writes so well. He has such a great command of the language. Mm -hmm. But it led me to, I mean, I wish more people use the word praxis, because Mm -hmm. if you're not familiar with the word, you wonder where it came from. So I went to trusty Wikipedia to see what it tells us about praxis. And I'm going to read now, quote, praxis is the process by which a theory, lesson, or skill is enacted, embodied, realized, applied, or put into practice. Praxis may also refer to the act of engaging, applying, exercising, realizing, or practicing ideas. So it's more practical than practice. (laughs) (laughs) We we read another definition where practice was the repetition of something so you can get better at it, whereas praxis was to just implementing it successfully. Mm -hmm. I think the big thing about strategy is change management, change acceleration. Mm -hmm. How do you implement it, like JP says? Mm -hmm. And implementing something, especially in a larger organization, is multidimensional. It has a lot of people involved. So you need shared vision. Mm-hmm. You need basically people to have signed up for mm-hmm. doing it. Uh, edicts are not going to really work. They will just cause friction. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem is that when you do come up with strategy, few organizations think about how are we going to implement it? How are we going to make sure that everybody who's in the line of site to make it work is bought into this? Mm-hmm. And a lot of organizations worry about the higher levels. Yep. They say, well, if the CEO and the management group agrees, mm-hmm. then it's a done deal. Well, it isn't because sometimes it's two, three levels down. 
people. Well, you and I were talking, you observing that you need to find out who would be the people to veto it. And it's not that they have power to. And my question for you was, yeah. is that the active veto or the passive veto? Because a lot of things get passively vetoed in corporations, sometimes for good reasons. So no matter what a CEO does, it doesn't matter if the guys on the front line say, that doesn't work. That won't work. That's right. So sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it goes against something else that you told the team to go do. Mm -hmm. And they're not clear which one you really are not going to want. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes things change and people's influence and turf mm-hmm. changes and they're going to have personal reasons not to want to do it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's an emotional attachment and you need to cause them to step back and look at the business, etc. But change management, change acceleration is really the most important part. Sometimes, and this is the one of the hidden ones, is sometimes, and this I've seen this with innovation and change quite a lot, their metric programs incentivize them to not do what you just told them to do. Right now, on. I have a theory that metric programs are valid only when you're in a fully stable situation. If you're trying to change, you're going to be stepping all over them. But now you've got managers right. whose kids going to college or not depend on their continuing to execute according to their, their comp plan. Right and on. then you tell them to do the opposite. So we really should try to see if we can get JP to join us so we can hear it from the source. Yeah, That's Absolutely. And I think as we talk, well, you and I will start scattering in some guests. We we're so pleased with how Sam Braley worked last time. It was really Sam's awesome. quite yes. fun to have Sam Thank on. Thank you, Sam. So, and we'll have him back for an all small business discussion. Yes, we should do that. Somebody suggested that on Twitter and it's a great idea. All right. Any comments before we go this time? You know, I was hoping to have some clever little smart quip to end with, but I couldn't. The best meme of the week, though, I will say, Uh was, you know, the meme with the guy and the girl, and he's turned around looking at the girl going the other way that we've all seen 20 million times. Oh, right. Yes. meme of the week had him wearing virtual glasses and the third girl's not there. Uh, which was kind of fun, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now we now he's going for the virtual. That's not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> virtual. All right. Uh, thank you all. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Doug. Until next time. Take care. That's it for this episode of the Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.